Hello and welcome once again to The Trigger Warning. Here at Queer Pressure Podcast, we like to warn you about any unsettling content right up at the front of the episode so we can all have a consensual time. The following episode contains mentions of sexual assault, suicide, bestiality, murder, homophobia, child grooming, discussions of genitalia, and we briefly talk about the ongoing trial of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd. If any of those topics sound unpleasant to you at the moment, that's all right. We'll see you next week. For the rest of you, please join us for Season 2, Episode 3, The Handmaiden. Hi, Queerios. I'm Maddie Gray. (laughs) And I'm Katherine Johnson, and you're listening to Queer Pressure Podcast, a critical exploration of queerness in media as an act of radical self-love. We are so glad you've decided to join us. Here's the question of the hour. (laughs) Oh, yeah? What's that? (laughs) It's what we were talking about literally 60 seconds ago. Is in the video, uh, How You Remind Me by Nickelback, who's Mm -hmm. in the wrong here, Chad Kroger or the random woman in the video well here's my take women who are tens need to stop settling for men who are fours well like okay overall yes i agree but like i also think that men need to be more in touch with their feelings and that like sometimes women can be the oppressors in relationships but men are told to just like suck it up and like don't cry and don't have feelings and i just like the vibe i got from chad kroger in that video was like that he was really hurt and he had some really big feelings and he's finally coming forward and saying like no lady stop 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 messing with my heart because i'm a person too the heck out of that um here's the thing though we're only getting one side of the story that's true we don't know anything about this lady except for that she's very pretty but you Um, also anybody who's not sure what the fuck not a four um Okay, for his emotional intelligence, I'll give him extra points, but, like, just seeing them embrace, um, he's tall. I wouldn't say he's cute. I think he's kind of cute. I am not attracted to men, but I think he's a (laughs) good-looking man in a 90s grunge way. Okay, I'll give you in a 90s grunge way. Yeah. For anybody who's, like, completely confused about what we're talking about we listen to a song to hype ourselves up before every episode, and this time it was... Nickelback. Yeah. (laughs) Let's talk about stuff going on in the world. Well, there's a lot going on. Trigger warning to everybody. We're going to be talking about the murder of George Floyd for the next couple of minutes. So if that's not something you want to hear about right now, just skip a couple minutes ahead. We'll keep it short. As of this recording, this is going to come out in a couple days, but as of this recording, it's the third day of the Derek Chauvin murder trial. The former officer who murdered George Floyd last May. Uh, have you been keeping up with it? I have seen clips from the trial um, and, like, been keeping tabs on activist Twitter handles. So that's my exposure to this trial at the moment. I tried yesterday because I'm between movies. I work on movies and TV and I'm between them right now. So I'm home all day. And I know you usually when there's something big happening, you like watch it all day. So Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm gonna watch this trial. I was watching it yesterday for like an hour. And they showed the video like twice. I didn't realize that I'd never seen the full thing. This, of course, doesn't mean much because I'm I'm a white person. My feelings literally don't matter on any of this. But I got like physically ill watching Mm -hmm. it. And so what they're doing right now is they're having all of the like witnesses all recount like what they went through. And it's really hard to watch. I I read something where it was psychologists saying um, the toll it takes on people to watch that clip you know, is just like difficult. And especially for marginalized communities, it's far more difficult. Oh God, and they're yes. like, so now put yourself in the shoes of these witnesses. They're like, it's uh-huh. a life changing trauma to have seen this happen. And I saw a clip of one of Chauvin's attorneys questioning one of the witnesses, but he was questioning this man who was a bystander and a witness. But he was like, did you call this man a pussy ass bitch? he was like if that's what i said on the recording then that's what i said (laughs) i'm just like you're watching a man like literally squeeze the life out of another man like that's the 
very least you could call him. He's a fucking murderer. We'll keep up with that. And Yeah, we sure will. Um we have a history in America of acquitting officers who pull yeah. this fucking shit. So um trying our best not to get our hopes up, but like mm-hmm. anyways, uh queer now news. A delightful update. Yeah. Uh Lil Nas X just let out a new song. Um as if we have to tell you guys <laughs> what the queer news is this week. And what a delight that music video was. Just watching it by itself, it didn't strike me as particularly controversial, but depicted in this music video is Lil Nas X um, rising to heaven and then sliding down to hell on a stripper pole and giving Satan a lap dance and then murdering Satan and taking over. It's really good. <laughs> but the conservative right is flipping its shit. It's been kind of straight. I'm in such a bubble. I realized like a little communist bubble that when I because of this podcast, I think largely because we watch queer media every week mm-hmm. that I was like, this isn't that subversive. <laughs> no, not at it. all. I was like, yeah, sure. It's like we, we watch this stuff every week and I forget that like this doesn't exist in the mainstream. I also just never see things from Republicans. So I was like, <laughs> are people upset about it? Like, it's not even a big deal. And then finally, like TikTok has shown me enough of, you know, the Tucker Carlson's of the world. And, you know, what's her name? Shitty pants. Oh, yeah, Caitlin shit pants. Caitlin shit pants Bennett. Poo 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 pee pee pants. Well, she got into a Twitter fight with Lil Nas yeah. X. Let's pull that up. I'm sure all of you have seen it by now, but for anyone who hasn't, okay. So Madison will be playing poo poo pee pee pants, Caitlin Bennett, Gun Girl, and I'll be playing Lil Nas X, Queen. It's weeks like these that I'm thankful to be blocked by Lil Nas X. I still see your tweets, shitty pants. Do you still see your dad? Yep, and I might fuck yours. Lil Nas threatened to rape my dad. Sounds about what I'd expect. He from I, what, uh, ma'am? A gay black man? Like, what are I you know, trying she was to say? First, yeah, absolutely like, racist. Yeah, um, like I just like the. Do you still see your dad when like this man is like publicly? So Anyways, um, on to what we're actually talking about today. Catherine, would you like to share? Yeah, we're watching. We watched a Korean lesbian movie, so that yes. intro had nothing to do with what we're literally doing today. nothing. <laughs> we watched the 2016 film The Handmaiden this week by Park Park Chan Wook, Chan Wook, who also directed Old Boy, mm-hmm. which is another famous Korean film, and it's starring two women whose last name is both Kim, no, no. Ta- oh, Tyree. Yeah, yeah. And Kim Tyree and Kim Min Hee. I almost got that you shouldn't have said it. Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. I was gonna say that too. Okay, you Fuck you go back and say it quick before you. anybody notices. No, it's too late. I'm I don't believe in lying. <laughs> so this is one that you've really wanted to do for a long time. Can you tell us why? I liked it. Uh huh. <laughs> That's why. Was that I, it? <laughs> yeah. I so I saw this movie in 2016 when it came out. I saw it like I had just moved to Portland. My friend was like you're a budding gay you should come to this gay double feature at one of these theaters in town it was when he worked at they showed moonlight and handmaiden as like Mm -hmm. a double feature and moonlight it was i think i probably talked about this in the moonlight episode i think it was like the like the first time it was shown in portland which isn't a big fucking deal at all but it was like the premiere and then they gave you the opportunity to escape before they showed the like three hour korean movie Mm. but and i remember we went and got way closer and we really liked moonlight and then we watched handmaiden and we were like at the end of handmaiden we're like that's like the best movie i've ever seen and i haven't seen it since then but yeah i've been asking to do handmaiden since like episode one of this podcast it's very good it's very good so i did not know what to expect walking into this because all i knew was that you liked it so if it's something that i haven't seen before i don't do any research i maybe watch the trailer beforehand which i did with this one Mm -hmm. and i got very like horror thriller lesbian vibes from the uh trailer which pretty close a lot less horror than you'd think it's it's hard to like pin it down but it's like a it's a period lesbian sensual thriller (laughs) yeah so according to the wikipedia page it's a south korean erotic psychological thriller (laughs) erotic was the word i couldn't find in the moment (laughs) erotic psychological thriller i mean i would we'll get into this later but i would um 
argue against the word erotic. I mean, it is extremely sexual. I'll say that. Certainly watched more erotic media. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As, in American culture, we do see a lot of erotic tones in a lot of movies, and it's usually between straight couples. So it was like really refreshing to see like sensuality from two women. Like they they show most things. It's basically softcore porn, which we okay. will get into. I, yeah, I guess I just like have always framed everything from The Handmaiden because it was like one of the like first lesbian movies I watched. It was like mm-hmm. this and like Blue is the Warmest Color. So I guess right. like that would be a different experience if you were coming from the movies we've been watching where I always just frame everything from Handmaiden and, Handmaiden and Blue is the Warmest Color, which have both received a lot of backlash for the uh, sex scenes. So it's about a young woman called Suki during the Japanese occupation of Korea in the 1930s. And there's this con man who calls himself uh, the Count Count Fujiwara. And Suki is this young female pickpocket who the Count enlists to help seduce this Japanese heiress called Lady Hideko and then marry her and commit her to an asylum in order to steal her inheritance. And he's he's using Suki, the handmaiden, to just kind of be in the lady's ear and be like, wow, you are so in love with the count, like to just kind of like... Your toenails are growing faster. Your, toenail, your yeah. cheeks are so flushed. You must like him a lot. But then on the other side of it there's all of this intrigue with lady hideko's house that she lives in because she's she's japanese and she is the heiress to this large fortune but she lives with her uncle who is horrible (laughs) a child uh, groomer uh, yeah well worse than that like i I feel like it's his like perversions led him to being a child groomer like overall he's just a sex pervert horrible man he's a big old sex pervert he is uh, like living on her dime and is planning to marry her and take her fortune. So the idea is they're going to slip under the uncle's radar and marry Lady Hideko, take her away, throw her in an asylum, take all her money and run off. But then feelings develop. <laughs> and things are complicated when our pickpocket Suki and Lady Hideko begin to fall in love. And so that's the primary relationship. Throughout the movie, even though it uh, twists and turns several times, like nothing is quite what it seems. And and then there's like three other twists. This is a movie in like three parts. Yeah. I'm going to say this right now. We're going to spoil the whole thing. So if mm-hmm. you haven't seen it and you don't want spoilers, now is the time to step away. Do you remember the first time you saw it, what you thought was going to happen? No. No? Okay. So it's super like fresh in my ago. mind because... Uh, <laughs> I just watched it for the first time Mm -hmm. this last week. I will say I did not see many of the twists uh, coming. These are really laid out in a way that it really takes you by surprise. Okay, so this movie is very critically acclaimed. I think it's better than, like, Portrait of a Lady on Fire and stuff like that. Yeah, I thought so, too. Because uh, most, like, LGBT movies are kind of just like, wow, it's a great LGBT movie, the relationship and stuff, where this is just a great movie. That's extremely true. There's an LGBT relationship, but that's not like the the cool part about the movie or the twists and turns and weird psychological drama of all of it. This is a really fantastic movie. I don't think that the director is a queer person. No. But like, it doesn't show. Well, something we haven't talked about. This movie is based off of a book called Mm -hmm. The uh, Fingersmith. The Fingersmith, which is what a a lesbianic name. Well, that just means pickpocket. (laughs) I know, but it has a double <laughs> okay, meaning. Okay, I see. Okay. Which was a British book. There's a BBC miniseries about it. And it was like the producer's wife or something read it and really loved it and got it in um, Park Chan-wook's you know, hands. And the main concerns were, one, there's already like a British series about this. And that in the original book is set in the Victorian era in Britain. Mm-hmm. So that was like the first concern. And to make it their own, they set it in 1930s Japanese-occupied Korea, which seems more interesting to me than Victorian Oh, for sure. Like the just geopolitical that... intrigue yeah. is way more interesting. Yeah. And they add this other element of like Japanese versus Korean identity, which seems like if you were pitching this idea, it'd be like, that's one too many things, <laughs> but it works right. really well. It works flawlessly. And, and there's just a lot of the elements that are so cool because of the like Asian aesthetic that i'm like i have a hard time understanding how this would have looked in like the victorian era and that it would have looked as cool 
What's really interesting is that they like tie Japanese architecture to like classic English Gothic architecture and like mash them together in a way that is so aesthetically pleasing. Like, I don't know. I didn't watch the BBC series because I wanted to go in with fresh eyes. I can't imagine it being any more aesthetically pleasing. Especially the reading portion of it. Mm -hmm. There's these scenes of the main character has to read these erotic novels. It's terrible. But just the set of it is is so Japanese. And like all the themes just feel like very, very Japanese. And it's very cool. So I have a hard time seeing what it would have been like if it was like Victorian. I don't know. It's just kind of boring (laughs) because they're so used to Victorian era stuff. Though yeah. I though I am always complaining, like, why don't we have a... Why wasn't Bridgerton gayer? But whatever. It's another whatever. topic. Another topic for another Something day. else interesting is that all of these actors are Korean, and a couple of them didn't actually speak Japanese before they did this movie. Mm-hmm. So they had to learn Japanese in order to do this movie, and even Japanese speakers couldn't really tell the t- difference because... They were so flawless in their execution. I really liked that they, uh, at the very beginning of the movie, they set it up in a way that subtitles in Korean are in white, subtitles in Japanese are in yellow. So you know what language somebody is speaking, even if you like don't necessarily hear the difference, if you're not practiced in hearing like different Asian languages. If you don't watch anime and Korean dramas. <laughs> <laughs> Which we do. It's fucking embarrassing. Um <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, But I I went off on a tangent, but the other part of the other concern was like that this was a lesbian movie being directed by a man. Mm -hmm. Um, And a big part of it is also he had a female co-writer and he said like he was like that woman, you know, gave me the audacity to do this project. (laughs) Like I didn't feel like I could do it (laughs) until. And and yeah, I think it's still done very well. There's there's some pushback about like the sex scenes, but like any lesbian movie with like visceral sex scenes will have some pushback to me. The erotica in this film, well, first off, it's basically softcore porn. Well, I... Well, not even that soft, either. I know. You don't see any, like, genitalia. I'll say that. But you get everything else. Yeah. I know. It's so funny, because I saw this so long ago, and it was, like, one of the first queer movies I watched, so it's just, like, so normalized to me. So Mm -hmm. having you say, like, this is, like, softcore porn, and I'm like, oh, I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> that I, I bring that up because that is the criticism that I keep hearing over oh. and over. Well, I those... watched a lot of YouTube reviewers who were like, it's just porn. Well, then those people need to watch more movies. Are yeah, you serious? Absolutely. Like, Especially more queer movies. Stop watching like, the fucking Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> absolutely. Because <laughs> like, if you think that that's porn, and it's I also just think a movie. People who are put off by the erotic tones in this movie are really missing the huge theme that is sexuality in this movie and not just because the two main characters are lesbians but because Hideko is forced to read these very sexual stories for her uncle and these other rich men who are possible buyers of his erotic literature this might sound ridiculous but I I almost feel like I thought that like portrait of a lady on fire was more erotic even though you don't see the sex the way you do in this movie, just tone- I... tonally. Yeah, it's just different because, like, we've talked about Portrait of a Lady on Fire extensively because we did an episode on it. But it's just, the gaze is different, you know? Um, we talked a lot about the female gaze on in Portrait of the Lady on Fire, which was like a response to the the male gaze in media. This does not do quite that, which right. is... There's a little bit. There's a little bit, um, but it very much is like kind of classic male gaze type of interactions yeah, more than... That's- and, and another criticism is people are like, there's too much implementation of the male gaze. And it's like, this movie is about how men's sexuality <laughs> ruins everything for them yes <laughs> so like that's so it's done on purpose it's not to be voyeuristic for the audience it's like that's the whole theme of the movie is that like men's libido will destroy them every time if you play mm-hmm. it right in this movie okay in I'm- this movie yes 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 <laughs> sorry <laughs> don't want to like paint with a giant broad brush that men's sexuality ruins everything the point of this <laughs> you were saying that Male sexuality ruins everything. 
<laughs> I don't believe um, that. I love men who dress as maids on TikTok. Oh, me too. When I say this movie is erotic, I mean in two very distinct ways. So we do have these sex scenes between Lady Hideko and Suki. But we also have the very graphic depictions or readings of these erotic literature books. Yeah. Um, where we actually see all of the photos. We see like labia and penises and in these books. Yeah. But when they actually have sexual relations, you don't see bits. You see, I mean, you see nipples. Yeah. But like, you don't see vulvas. <laughs> you don't see, well, I guess that's all there is to see, right? Yeah. You don't see any penetration, but you do in the in the literature, which just like speaks to me about the normalization of male sexuality and the like the turn that this movie is trying to take. I know. On yeah. Cuz I mean, this last time when I was watching it, cuz I work in the film industry, and we mostly just were like, wow, how they do that? There are things that you do to um mimic the act of sex with between the actors without them actually becoming aroused or putting someone in a vulnerable position because they are people and sex scenes are hard for everybody like it's always like the worst part like (laughs) nobody likes doing sex scenes Mm -hmm. so even like my inclination to go like wow how did they pull that one off watching it i'm like that's just like you know like just shows that it feels very graphic but randomly the first thing that just came to mind is like one of the first like graphic sex scenes I saw in a movie was like uh, Matrix, the second Matrix, Matrix yeah, Reloaded. I was actually thinking about that yeah. one too. I don't think that there's any more graphic. If I remember correctly, like the Matrix scene kind of like cuts between it and stuff, but that's a normal sex scene between a man and a woman in a movie, mm-hmm. in a radar movie, you know, and nobody stops totally. and goes, what? You know, that's not the conversation we're still having about the Matrix is the mm-hmm. <laughs> scene between Neo and Trinity having sex which raises the question why do we do that to queer movies when they have like graphic sex scenes yeah why isn't the discussion as much about the prince that we see in this movie of like the octopus on the lady you know and going into the lady yeah which is which is a very historically well okay well that's another thing too is like that print in this like erotic library, they show this very famous print, and it's alluded to a lot. Of um, it's called like the Fisher Dream of the Fisherman's Wife or something, and it shows a couple octopuses like having sex with a woman, and <laughs> it's terrible, but it is part of I guess Japanese history. Even in this like, within this movie, there are less criticisms about the like very graphic art than there are about the graphic sex scenes between the two women, and just. Because I feel like we need to give some context for why there's so much graphic sex art. Yes. So Hideko has been uh, raised by her uncle Kazuki to read graphic depictions of erotica to these wealthy buyers for his collection of erotic Japanese literature. Um, And he's groomed her from a very young age to read this erotica. Um, Because originally it was her aunt that read it. Yes, originally it was her aunt and her aunt helped teach her how to like read the word penis in Japanese. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But at one point, her aunt tries to escape from this life that is clearly not giving her any freedom or anything like that. And because she tried to escape, the uncle kills her and frames it as a suicide. And hangs her from a tree. Hangs her from a tree. Yeah. And he tells Hideko that if you ever try to run, it will happen to you too. So Hideko is literally trapped in this forcible sexualization cycle under threat of death. Yeah. With like no end in sight because her uncle wants to marry her now. Do we want to talk about plot now? Sure. So this plot is i thought brilliantly derived it's a unique three-part structure and in part one we meet suki hideko and the count the plan is once he has married her he puts her into an asylum and runs off with her money when they arrive at the asylum to drop hideko off and it's actually suki that they grab And when Suki reaches out to Lady Hideko and says, help me, she says, oh, my poor lady has really lost it, hasn't she? And just like turns her back on her and walks away. And that's the end of part one. This whole time we think the tension is that like they're falling in love and Lady Hideko is so innocent and she doesn't have anybody and all she has is Suki and she doesn't know that Suki's betraying her. And then suddenly at the end, we find out that like, no, Suki was always the bait that they were always going to just throw her off to pretend to be Lady Hideko. 
And so it's which like, we learn what? in part two, <laughs> because which is I like to call the actual con. The actual con, yeah. But like the the fun thing about it is like part one, it's a very classic problem that you don't question it like it's, it's a kind of shakespearean you know and so you assume that that is the central tension yeah i was getting very 12th night vibes even though 12th night is not quite as nefarious of like falling in love with your handmaid or your uh the messenger yeah and having that conflict there of like how am i gonna let this person down how am I, and for suki how am i going to betray this woman that i now love and, and it follows all the beats, like if part one was just a movie itself, it follows all the beats well enough that you don't question that there's a twist coming up. You yeah. assume that it's the like conflict happens and it's not the conflict, it's a twist. And it's like, we still have two thirds of this movie. <laughs> I know when I was watching it, I like, I knew that this was a long movie because I looked at how many minutes it was. Mm-hmm. And then I looked at the clock when part one ended and I was like, no fucking way. Yeah. We're only about a third of the way through. Yeah. So then watching no. it in theaters was really exciting because I had no idea how long it was or how much time was mm-hmm. passing or anything. And we all went, what? You know? <laughs> like, what is happening? Mm-hmm. In part two, we find that Hideko and Count Fujiwara have been in cahoots this whole time and that Suki's the real target. And the plan is actually to commit Suki under Lady Hideko's name, and then they walk away with two halves of the her- inheritance each, right? They mm-hmm. each walk away with a half. And he's just helping her get away from the evil uncle. And also he's getting a bunch of money. No, but I'm saying that's what she's getting out of it. Like, why wouldn't she just leave on her own? Yeah. Which is interesting because it, originally that's not enough for her. It takes him being like, okay, well, I have this opium also. Yeah. yeah. And she says, the second I marry you, I want it. And that's the opium that will kill her before she gets down to the basement. Which is really interesting because I didn't even, like, I knew that there was something passed between him and her in part one, right as they said their wedding vows. And I was like, I wonder what that is. But then I just, like, was so willing to just not pay I attention know. to that. Yeah, the, it, just it was like, so clever. I don't know what, yeah, how it does it because you go, like, what is that? And then it just keeps going. And you're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's like, oh, that makes sense. I remember that, you know. Mm-hmm. And you don't question that there's something else going on there. Uh, I'm trying to think of what else happens in part two. It's um, it's just this total reversal where we find out Lady Hideko, we find out her backstory of like she's been groomed since she was a child and she's not this like innocent mm-hmm. person everyone thinks. She's actually this like kind of cold calculating person who's been really broken inside. But then we see from her side her starting to fall in love with Suki. So in part three, I like to call this one the new con when Hideko and Suki start developing feelings for one another the plan has to change so then they develop a new plan Suki's gonna pretend to be surprised by the betrayal at the asylum while Hideko steals the count's half of her inheritance and breaks Suki out of the asylum and they yeah run off and they together. like um steal the count's passport she pretends to be a man and they get away and it's great. And all the men lose. It's just such, it's like a masterclass in retextualizing, recontextualizing. It is so many twists and turns that you don't see coming because they've laid the groundwork for it to be like so, they, they use your suspension of disbelief against you. Yeah. It's not just like a good, like LGBT movie. It's like a good movie. It's a yeah. good movie. Which, not to say that like LGBT movies aren't good, but like a lot of the draw of like Portrait of a Lady on Fire and, you know, the Watermelon Woman and stuff is like the queerness of it. It's just like a really fucking awesome movie that happens to be queer. Um, So I know that this is going to come out of absolutely fucking nowhere because we were just like right in the middle of a conversation about The Handmaid, but Madison and I stepped away <laughs> to go have a bagel slash wine break and Madison was like, I want to uh, watch nickelback again before we come back and i was like sure um so i have more thoughts about this nickelback song and i'm sorry if people want to hear me talk about mm-hmm. the handmaid but how dare you like that part like i know i'm not attracted to men and all that stuff but the part where he's like for handing you a heart worth breaking that's that's sexy that's really good and that part is really sexy and now that i've watched it again i cannot unsee Melania yeah so Trump. okay here's what i'm taking from it here's what i'm taking from it everybody go watch this music video and tell me what you think these two bring out the worst in each other that's what the song's about where he's like you remind me of what i really am right where he's like 
I'm a terrible person. Like I'm we were, a bad boy. But like, but he's saying it in a way, you know, it's like, you know, that sad part of you that's like, I'm a terrible person. That's who I really am is a shitty, shitty person. Because when he's around her, that's who they both are. This is him overcoming that and being like, we're bad for each other. And that's not who I really am. Get out of my life, Melania, because we're not doing this shit anymore. <laughs> I love it. I love that take. Chad Kroger is a king. Stop what <laughs> And Melania Trump is a well, bitch. I'm not saying she's necessarily a bitch. Just like the Melania Trump character is bad for him. They're bad for each other and he is trying to break the cycle. So she's not the villain. They're both the villain, you know? The demon the in his head who's saying, like, this is how you remind me of what I I just hit my mic because I'm I'm incensed. Um <laughs> this is how you remind me of what I really am. He had to learn, like, no, that's not who I really am. I can choose who I am based on who I am with. If I am not with this person, I can be a better person. What a Thank good you. message. Good work, Nickelback. Back to, and, and also he looks like that, you know, everyone's favorite Italian twink, Jesus Christ, in this video, which is great. <laughs> So let's get back to the news. No, you have to. You have to address that. No, part. I just the said Italian it. twink. Do you, no. Once again, I know the backstory behind that comment, but I don't know that our listeners will necessarily know the backstory. There's a TikTok going around about how the Western depiction of Jesus Christ was based on Leonardo da Vinci's Italian lover. <laughs> no, Michelangelo's Italian lover. Michelangelo's whatever. Um, the last time I said it, I said Leonardo DiCaprio, so at least give me that. <laughs> Jesus is an Italian twink. Anyways, let's Good get work. back to the movie. The Handmaid. Um, did you like this movie? Yes. I love this movie, obviously. Um, I do too. And also, I think that Suki and Hideko bring out the best in each other to bring it back to Nickelback. Like, if I was going to make an edit of this movie to a song, it would not be the Nickelback song because they bring out the best in each other. That best being overcoming men by using their libidos against them yeah bitch one of the biggest biggest themes of the whole movie is men's sexuality and like how ruled by it they can be and therefore how everybody is ruled by it yeah where women are the like instruments of it have to like fit into these roles because men can't get past their own libido and this is you know obviously generalized statements but certainly largely in the world <laughs> mm. a lot of why the world works the way it does is because men cannot control their sexual urges yeah the very institution of marriage was established for that reason just like what you're allowed to wear to school or to work the like, fact that women can't walk around without shirts on and men can because men can't control themselves. The fabric of society is written by men's inability to control their sexual urges. Which I think is like really um, harmful for men. Because then men grow up thinking that they can't control themselves and that they don't have to. And I thought the most telling moment of this, because they, they make the case early on that this is what this is about. It's about old stinky uncle Kuzuki putting ink all over his tongue and being stupid annoying and gross but <laughs> the other man we have in the movie count fujiwara he makes a big case early on that like he's not in it for sex with hideko and he's in it for the money he says this many times and i believe him at mm -hmm. the beginning that his big line in the beginning is that he lies in bed at night thinking of her assets mm -hmm. of her money but he says this many many times but then in the end what undoes him is she seduces him. And it just shows like how dumb men are, heter some cisgender heterosexual men, because he is talking like he's above these like doddering fools around him. These other men who all sit in this room and listen to these erotic books and can't control themselves because of these erotic books read by this beautiful woman. And he's like, I'm above that. I'm in this for the money but is undone by the same thing and doesn't see that. Yeah. And so that was like the most damning criticism of even the one man whose entire character is based on he's above his sexual urges. And he's not only undone by his own sexuality, but by something he's already given her, which is that opium, mm -hmm. which just feels like he's given her power over him. That happens at the point where they get married and she takes control of that wedding night where he's like, come on, it'll be fast. We don't even like barely have to do it because, you know, the classic you got to find blood on the sheets or it's not real. Right. Where she like starts to like lean in to kiss him and then like cuts her hand open. <laughs> to put blood on the sheets and she's like it's done and like lays down and goes to sleep 
Yeah, this is one of, I would say, like, there's, like, four major, like, sensual scenes. Rank them for me. So the wedding night is one of them. Obviously, the actual sex scene. Um, there's a couple of is, actual sex scenes. Well, it's one that we see twice. One like, that we, we see, see twice it, and then the one at the end. And then, the, yes, and the one at the end with the bells. But then the other one that's, like, kind of the scene most people talk about and was one of the scenes that made them want to make this movie the approximate character of Hideko in the book gets a sharp tooth. Oh, yeah. Or one of her teeth is too sharp and it keeps cutting her cheek. So Suki grabs a thimble to file it down. <laughs> and it's supposed to be this just like intensely erotic moment because uh, like Hideko's in the bath and uh, Suki's just like holding her face and like cutting this tooth down. And she it's literally like, it literally has a finger in her mouth. Yeah, and it's like, so it's like physical, but then it's also this like, you know, taking care of dynamic Mm -hmm. in all of these men just being gross everywhere. (laughs) We have this in the middle of it, which shows uh, the difference of the relationship. And then there's that tender moment where like while she's filing off, filing down her tooth, Hideko grabs Suki's arm and starts stroking it with her thumb where it just starts. It starts the acceleration of, oh, there's something here. And it's beyond physical. It's just, it's that tenderness, that caring that tends to happen in female relationships as opposed to, you know, the gross ickiness of the uncle and the uh, succumbing to his urges of the count. When he tells Hideko finally that, like, he wants to sleep with her because she's trying to seduce him because she's trying to give him the opium. And she says, like, I- I'll reward you with a kiss. And he was like, no, if I kiss you, I, I won't stop. Yeah, he's like, I'm not going to stop. I'm going to, hmm. I don't even want to say it. It's gross. So. It is gross. Never mind. But it is a pervasive thought in like this culture of like men can't stop if they start, which is not yeah. true. And like, if anybody ever tries to tell you, no, it will hurt my balls. It's not true. Like, yeah, they might be sore, but like Get over their it. soreness Mastery. is not your problem. Your balls aren't anyone's problem. No, they're your problem. And you need to deal with them. All of the male characters in the whole movie take their own, you know, sexual urges, like, very, very... They they feel that they have, like, control over the world because of their, like, sexual control over the girls. And so the fun part is that it is... All of it is undone. Mm-hmm. And it kind of shows, like, what society could be if people who were... You know, specifically women in this instance, which I I don't like to just talk about like women as oppressed, right? But specifically, if women uh, worked were working together to undermine men, it, how completely possible it would be, which is not my favorite thing to talk about because it's like such a white feminist thing to say of like if we women just stop tearing each other down and work together it's like yeah we'll stop being a turf jk rowling then we'll talk (laughs) true true facts also in that scene where hideko seduces the count is this moment where we really see that like her sexuality is defined he says like she says that she'll kiss him and then he like grabs her face and then he says these are not the eyes of somebody who wants it and she's like "Mm, i could pretend (laughs) yeah and like it's really really i love that you brought this up it's his sexuality that brings him down because she starts to kiss him and like he won't drink the champagne that she snuck the opium it's into. It's not champagne, it's red wine. I'm sorry, she, he won't drink the red wine that oh she snuck his opium into. Can you imagine if somebody heard you say that? You did. They're going to know that we didn't even watch the movie. <laughs> and uh, she has to like put it in her mouth and then push it into his mouth while she's kissing yeah. him. Yeah. And he's like, ooh, cool, sexy. Sexy, <laughs> weird thing that you're doing. Oh, and then he does, like, I, trigger warning, he tries to force her. Yeah. Oh, God. The thing he says to her. I yeah. think we have to say, even though this is, like, highly triggering, it is, like... Extremely triggering. It was very triggering for me as well. Uh- <laughs> but it is kind of, like, part of the theme of the whole movie yeah. of, like, why these men are acting the way they are. You want to say it? Who wants to say it? Oh, God, I don't want to <laughs> say it. Okay, so I can't find the actual quote. Probably largely to do because it's a um, translation. And it's a translation. uh, Is that he tells her that um, from what he understands, uh, women derive the most pleasure from being taken by force. Mm -hmm. And um, luckily he passes out before this happens. 
But then he, at the very end, uh, when he's talking to the Count, and the Count's getting highly aroused, and he's like, did she push you away, all this stuff? And he has to tell him, like, I'm beginning to doubt that (laughs) women enjoy being taken by force, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's like, no shit, dude. Cute. Cute look for cis men. Good job. We've talked a lot about the men in this movie. But another fun thing about the movie, that also, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, I feel like it's very... I don't know. It is, like, very sensual and, like, looking at each other and that kind of thing. Where this movie does kind of, like, capture, like, the fun part of, like, a female relationship. Yeah, for sure. That you don't see in movies a lot because a lot of the time it's spent kind of focusing on the tragedy and that kind of thing. But you do get to see, like, the, they dress each other up. But it does just kind of, like, reflect, like, female relationships. of so, like, the fun the fun part of it that um you don't always get in a heterosexual relationship of, like, playing dress up. Playing dress up and doing each other's makeup and stuff like that. being giggly and stuff, you know. So that is a fun aspect of the movie. That it's not just focused on, like, the the sapphic nature of female, you know. Which has its place. I'll be real. But, like, it was not in this movie. This movie is super fast-paced. Like, you get through the whole, um, well, what you think is the whole con in part one and then you just kind of redo the con in part two and then part three is kind of the the new plan it does not have time for all the sapphic lolling well no i'm i'm not even saying that i'm saying that like they have more time they take more time because usually it's like other movies don't have the time to do the like fun part because they're too focused on the sapphic thing oh i mean they pay enough attention to the sapphic thing but it's so long that we like get to see more of it like when people talk about the silliness of the movie and i don't know it's kind of pretentious to me that like that's seen as a detriment because they're like a lot of it is just very silly and it's like yeah well shit is silly yeah shit is silly all the time not every lgbt movie has to be some prestige like and and especially like lesbian movies like aren't silly very often like they're taking like obviously we keep talking about portrait of lady on fire but it's also a period piece about like young women and there's like a class dynamic so Mm -hmm. it's very similar but that's that movie takes itself very seriously extremely seriously yeah like there are parts where we were laughing but we shouldn't have been (laughs) we we really like that movie but um i i like that this movie gets both darker and lighter yeah it gives a really nice balance between that dark tones of what's like happening in the basement and what hideko is forced to do um in front of all these men but then we also get these moments of just being able to giggle because like that's yeah life right everybody has yeah. tragedy but everybody also gets a little bit of light like uh you know sharing corsets and when suki like catches hideko because she was gonna hang herself mm-hmm. and they're talking and then suki gets like overwhelmed by finding out how evil the count is and she like lets go to scream and we have this like wide shot of hideko going like oh, oh, oh yeah and so and like so I've, I've definitely seen criticisms where they're saying that like this is them poking fun at lesbians right and i don't think so that didn't strike me like that just because it's not like blue is the warmest color and they're not just like always being really broody <laughs> right yeah like girls aren't that broody not always sometimes no. but like You've got to have that balance or else it's so one note. And and there's just like a different dynamic to it when it's like two girls, you know. Because mm-hmm. there's a, a lot of shared experience there despite yeah. class, class dynamics. You know, in some cases, like, you know, sharing clothes and sharing makeup yeah. and stuff like that. Like, not not always because some people identify differently. But like, but there are some like, like, oh, I need a tampon, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Like unspoken girl code. Yeah. Which, and not necessarily because not all women menstruate, but I was just looking for examples of things like that. And being able to see Suki and Hideko's shared experiences, bringing them closer together is very cute. Another very funny thing that I didn't know if it was supposed to be funny, but I laughed anyway, was at one point um, Hideko was reading one of those erotic books um, about a man putting bells inside a woman that scene that she's reading is like two women oh really I yeah totally miss that because that um people point to that a lot because it's the first time that she pulls out the kerchief to like oh blot herself 
because normally she's completely cold behind the eyes. Like, I don't give a fuck about these men penetrating these women. But then when it was like there was a lesbian part of it, like uh-huh. she was getting a little hot and bothered. And because this was also after she had first like consummated with Suki. Right. I totally missed that. That was yeah. on me. But at but, the end, their final sex scene, after they've like gotten away and they've gotten away with it, they have all the money. Like, <laughs> uh, Hideko pulls out two sets of bells and puts one in Suki and has Suki put one in her. And I just, I lost it because I was just like, every time a vagina bells, a lesbian gets her wee, re- wings. A vagina bells. Oh, I'm sorry. Every time a vagina <laughs> bell rings, a lesbian, lesbian gets, her, gets wings. her wings. But there's a lot of criticism about that ending. Of Why? That, that it's too silly and that it undoes. And I know, and I just kind of hate all of it. Like, who cares? <laughs> Why does it have to all be a prestige drama? Why can't it be stupid? Oh, I love that it's so silly. Like, yeah, I laughed and it made me happy about the ending because like now they get to go have a life that is silly and happy as opposed to just like sitting under the oppression of men together. Also, we never get to see this. A happy ending for lesbians. Oh, I was shocked. Um, Me too. I I was waiting for the ball to drop. Yeah, I think I brought this up when we watched... uh, Portrait of Lady on Fire that I think I equally brought up Handmaiden as much as I have brought up Portrait of Lady on Fire in this episode. Spoiler alert, Portrait of Lady on Fire ends with a sad ending. People said, I know we're tired of lesbian movies having sad endings and stuff, but it's like a period piece. So what are you supposed to do? And I was like, Handmaiden doesn't have a sad ending. Yeah. So you don't have to give it a, a sad ending. You don't but, have to. You can give it some whimsy and some hope. But it, but a lot of that is only because we have the lightness of Handmaiden, you mm-hmm. know? That's true. It would have felt completely tonally wrong in Portrait of a Lady on Fire because everything took itself so seriously. It was very serious, yeah. And and not to say that, like, Handmaiden doesn't take, take itself seriously because like, it's far darker than oh, Portrait yeah. of a Lady on Fire. And I think Portrait of a Lady on Fire is a good movie. I think Handmaiden is a fantastic movie. I think it's one mm-hmm. of the best, certainly LGBT movies ever made. I think it's one of the best movies ever made. The Guardian, I think I saw it, put it at like 41 out of 100 best movies of the mm. 21st century. And like, that's that's huge. That's <laughs> huge. For like this Korean movie that whenever I bring it up, people are like, The Handmaid's Tale? And I'm like, no, not The Handmaid's Tale way better handmaiden is like the 41st like best movie of the 21st century somebody asked me this week they were like you do that queer podcast and i was like yes yes correct i do that and they were like what's been your favorite piece of queer media and i don't know the answer my response was like it depends what you mean by favorite like do you mean structurally my favorite tonally my favorite like story-wise my favorite like what are you asking me (laughs) it's kind of like in my head it's all like coming together in like a library of stuff yeah where it's like i i like having seen so many of these things and being able to compare uh my own private idaho (laughs) it's still my favorite (laughs) i don't know handmaiden got up into my top five for sure yeah, for sure. I don't know. I think about Watermelon Woman all the time, even yeah. though I didn't think... I thought there were a lot of uh, parts of Watermelon Woman that were, like, not as great. Oh, oh, oh. Rafiki, I think about all the time. Oh, all the time. Shit's Creek. I always think... Uh, yeah, Shit's Creek, always. I brought up also Revolutionary Revolutionary, Revolutionary Girl, Girl Utna. Utna changed my life. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Um, And it was so funny because the person who asked me, I was like, we did a whole anime month. And he was like, there's that much queer anime and i was like oh bitch there's not just not just that like you brought up another one and i said we can't do one outside of anime month because we had so many ideas and i was like no let's keep it to anime month mm-hmm. yeah where you had like another one you wanted to do like yeah i think we already have magical it Monica. mostly figured out for the next one yeah for the next yeah. anime month for sure yeah i mean i always say this i always jump up on my soapbox to talk about you know representation this one in particular struck me as like The impact of seeing queerness favorably depicted on screen just, like, can't be underestimated, you know? Like, to see such graphic sexual activity between queer people just shows the distinct double standard in media, which we've talked about on this episode, where, like, straight sexual activity is totally normal, where, like, queer sexuality is taboo. But, like, for this movie, it all made sense. Like, there are critics who disagree, but... 
this is a movie to start normalizing queerness on screen and i think that that's beautiful but it shouldn't go unsaid that this is not you know this isn't for american audiences this is obviously to normalize queerness and like i don't even we obviously haven't talked much about korea in this episode but it's every time we ever do a movie from somewhere foreign it's kind of the same thing of like it's not accepted like gay marriage is not legal in korea at least of the making of this movie i don't know if it has since then in all the articles i was reading from 2016 Okay, so what's happening is, on January 26th, the South Korean government announced that it would seek to revise the legal definition of family in South Korea and hold a public hearing on the need to recognize the full diversity of families, including single parents and unmarried, coded, queer families. So it's not in effect yet, but it is being brought into the conversation, which is new for South Korea. Um, Final words, Catherine. I don't know, I want a sequel... I do too. I want to see what the the little lesbians do on in their life together. Where they go? Do they open a farm? Do they have bees? Well, they they have a million dollars. Yeah, they have do whatever the they want. The yeah, lesbians triumph over icky men who try to seduce them every time. Yeah, lesbians can conquer the world. Is the message that I got from this yeah. movie. And bisexual women. Of course. I'm not going to gatekeep the word lesbian. I don't think that's okay. Yeah. We don't gatekeep shit. But, like, there are turfs all over the place that are like, trans women can't be lesbians. And I'm like, fuck you. Before I go on a tirade, I think we should get out of here. Yeah, we don't need to do a turf tirade every episode. Every episode. I mean, I'm here for the turf tirades when they happen, but this is not the time nor the place. So uh, we're switching gears out of the uh, the sapphic zone for next week. We're watching a classic. We're watching Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Ooh, baby. Um, and just so like people start preparing themselves for this momentous thing that's going to follow that. Um, in a couple weeks, we're going to be doing a fortnight of vampires. Fortnight meaning the term, not the video game, because that wouldn't make sense. Uh, we're doing two weeks of vampires, Twilight and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, I'm so excited. And let me tell you, this Twilight episode is going to be the Twilight episodes and all Twilight episodes. Like, I'm going to be so ready. I'm reading the books. It's going to be great. Catherine but, um, is out of control, y'all. Yeah. I had to talk you into it. and You did. Um, because I was like, queerness and Twilight? And it's you there! said, ooh, bitch! It's there! <laughs> it's there. It's going to be possibly my magnus o- magnum opus. Magnus nanus. Magnum opus. Kristen Stewart's in it. Anyways, next week is Hedwig and the Angry Inch, which is a campy musical. Absolutely. You're going to love it. You've been listening to Queer Pressure Podcast and our critical explorations of queer media as a continued practice of self-love with Katherine Johnson. And Maddie Gray. Hey, you! Yeah, you. If you like what you hear, please consider subscribing to us or following or leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. It actually really does help us out and it gives us some good feedback too um you can also follow us on social media we post all the time and i love to get into twitter fights if you want to follow us search for at queer pressure pc on instagram facebook and twitter once again that is queer pressure pc for podcast not for prejudiced country oh my how topical how topical Where my money, Joe? (laughs) Thank you for being with us, and we hope you have a great day. And as always, fuck the police.